Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 78 of History of the Marine Corps, Banana Wars, Nicaragua, Part 2. We head back to Nicaragua and discuss the Marines' participation as the intervention comes to an end. We conclude the episode by introducing the next banana war intervention, the Dominican Republic. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Nicaragua continued to have conflicts between the two factions, and the country began to feel the impact financially and politically through another rebellion. President Coolidge sent General Henry Stimson to Nicaragua to meet with the American minister and Admiral Latimer, the commander of naval forces in Nicaragua. On April 9th, Stimson left for Managua. He met with the American minister and Admiral Latimer and they discussed the state of affairs in the country. After the meeting, Stimson immediately met with President Diaz, other Nicaraguan officials, and leaders of the opposition party. During this conference, Stimson clearly defined the U.S. policy regarding Nicaragua. He opened the conversation for the two factions, and they discussed their issues as well as solutions. Stimson made a comprehensive investigation and he concluded the conflict had reached a stalemate. Most soldiers on both sides had deserted and were now outlaws. On April 22nd, President Diaz proposed a peace settlement. He offered six suggestions. One, immediate general peace and delivery of arms simultaneously by both parties into American custody. Two, general amnesty and return of exiles and return of confiscated property. 3. Participation in the Diaz cabinet by representative liberals. 4. The organization of a Nicaraguan constabulary on a nonpartisan basis to be commanded by American officers. 5. Supervision of the 1928 and subsequent elections by Americans who would have ample police power to make effective such supervision. And 6. A temporary continuance of a sufficient force of American Marines to secure the enforcement of peace terms. Although a truce would eventually be declared, the country had been in the state for years, and certain parts of it were still at the mercy of local bandits. 
Diaz's first suggestion regarding giving up all arms meant that Nicaragua wouldn't have the means of stopping these gangs. Stimson's solution was to have U.S. troops maintain order until Nicaragua trained and deployed a unified army. This responsibility fell on the Marine Corps. And as time progressed, the responsibilities grew. And soon, the Marine Corps faced significant challenges. 800 additional Marines were sent to Nicaragua to help with the new threats popping up. The Marine Corps had a total force of around 19,000 men, but many were already serving in China, Haiti, and a few thousand were already in-country. Troops were brought in from the east coast of the United States and Haiti, and they formed the 11th Regiment. The first mission for these Marines was to disarm both parties. The 5th Regiment established a defensive line along the Tippitapa River to prevent the two sides from fighting. The Marines also covered the withdrawal of the Federals and stopped the Liberals from getting too close to the unarmed party until all weapons were turned in. Nicaragua paid $10 for each rifle and machine gun. Three Marine officers carried out the disarming. The Liberals turned in 3,704 rifles, 31 machine guns, and over 1.5 million rounds of ammunition. The Federals turned in about 11,000 rifles, 308 machine guns, and over 4 million rounds of ammunition. However, not everyone participated in the disarmament. A few groups broke off, headed to the borders, and formed other elements which would continue to rebel for the next five years. Even with thousands of troops deployed to Nicaragua, Marines had a hard time bringing order to the country. There were still plenty of Marines stationed throughout the railway, and they soon began to run into rebels. Sporadic firefights would pop up. Most of them were harmless. Rebels would fire at the Marines, Marines would fire back, and the rebels fled. But sometimes, they escalated to a little more. On May 16th, 300 outlaws entered La Paz Central at night and started firing into the town. Captain Richard Buchanan and a detachment of Marines engaged the rebels in a street fight. And although the Marines would be successful in driving them off, Captain Buchanan and Private Jackson were killed in this battle. Two other Marines were wounded. The 11th Regiment, commanded by Colonel Randolph Berkeley, showed up on March 19th and helped support the railroad. By the end of May, Marine detachments were spread throughout the entire country. By June, the number of Marines in Nicaragua reached 3,300, and they were dispersed between 43 areas in the country. The Marine Corps made little progress in policing Nicaragua. The idea of a unified national force wasn't close to being established, and the Marines were needed elsewhere. General Logan Phelan began making plans for a partial withdrawal of his troops. On May 24th, he stated that he believed order could be maintained with half the number of Marines. The Commandant agreed with him, and more than half of the Marines were recalled, as well as one of the aviation squadrons. The only units left to provide defense were the 5th Regiment, one aviation squadron, and a small Nicaraguan police detachment of 46. There were 1,377 men left to defend Nicaragua, and those numbers continued to drop. On July 15th, 
Phelan's plan of a smaller force policing the country would be tested. Captain Gilbert Hatfield led a detachment of 36 Marines. He was accompanied by 48 Nicaraguan guards, who were commanded by Captain Grover Darnell. They had just settled down in the town of Ocotal when they were attacked by a rebel force of five to six hundred men. Sandino, the rebel's leader, had learned of the Marines being sent for him, and he decided to strike first. And if it wasn't for a single Marine standing firewatch, he might have done more damage. As Sandino was approaching, the sentry sounded the alarm, and Marines immediately manned their post. But despite their speed, the rebels were able to surround their position. At 1 a.m., the battle commenced, and it lasted for two hours. Sandino momentarily called off his men, and he attacked again at 4 a.m. The Marines would defend against the rebels for four more hours until Sandino called off the attacks a second time. The rebel leader sent a flag of truce, and he demanded the Marines surrender. If they didn't, their refusal would result in their complete destruction. Captain Hatfield sent a simple reply to Sardino and stated that, quote, Marines did not know how to surrender, unquote. He warned the bandits that Marines would resume firing as soon as their flag of truce was out of sight. At 10 a.m., the Marines received support from aviation, and two planes arrived from Managua. They fired at the rebel army until all of their ammunition was used up. Five more planes showed up, and these were armed with bombs as well. They attacked the bandits in the early afternoon, and soon after, they fled. One Marine was killed, and one was wounded during this battle. Three Nicaraguan guards were killed. The Sandinistas had between 40 to 80 killed, and about 100 wounded. Sandino's decision to attack would cost him, and his men began to lose faith in the cause. Many of his men would leave, and the strength of his army would be reduced. Rear Admiral David Sellers visited Nicaragua soon after the battle, and he agreed with Phelan's decision to continue to withdraw Marines. Nicaraguan forces were now 230 strong, and they started making plans on how they would police their own country. Back in the United States, the idea of military intervention in Nicaragua, specifically the agreement Stimson made with the country, was criticized by Congress, the press, and U.S. citizens, not to mention other Latin American countries. About 4,100 Marines were in China. Leathernecks were taken from multiple ships and regular stations to compensate, causing a shortage. After the Battle of Ocotal, more troops moved to the area to seek out the rebels. Major Oliver Floyd took 50 Marines, followed by a company of Marines out of Managua. Another company of Marines were shipped in from Nueva Segovia. Floyd was assigned a few more Marines, and soon, he and his detachment of 110 pushed east, searching for Sandino. He didn't see a single man from the Sandino army. They assumed that the lack of soldiers meant either they deserted or were hiding. The Marines pulled back, and by August, the number of U.S. troops remaining were around 1,200. The number of post-Marines were guarding were reduced as well. Sandino took advantage of a smaller U.S. presence, and he attracted attention from other rebels in Central America, Mexico, and even the United States. 
His resources grew financially and in manpower, and Sandino soon had enough funds to staff an army and provided them with adequate weapons. His armed force topped 1,000 soldiers. But no one knew this was going on. When Phelan left, the control of U.S. forces passed to the jefe director of Guardia, who didn't bother to send men after Sandino. Things slowly got worse as time went on, and Marines on patrols would periodically be ambushed by the rebels. Marine aviation provided a lot of help, and they would regularly patrol the area and eliminate any rebel that they spotted. Resistance continued to grow as the year came to an end, and the attack on the Marines would increase. In the last two months of 1926, Marines faced 20 ambushes alone. Attacks started to get worse throughout the country, and during this whole time, no one was reporting the status to the American government. It wouldn't be until the middle of October when the U.S. got wind of what was happening in Nicaragua. 200 Marines were sent from the states to help, but the situation was completely out of control even with their support. The Marines had a force smaller than Sandino. It was complicated to get supplies to the Marines in the jungle, and military commanders significantly underestimated the opposition. An expedition was established with a detachment of 150 Marines and seven Nicaraguan guards under Captain Richard Livingston. They left on December 21st to attack Sandino. There was a second detachment of 60 Marines and guards led by Lieutenant Reichel, and they marched east towards Livingston. On December 30th, the Marines were a mile away from Kilali, and they were ambushed by a large rebel detachment. Five Marines were killed, and 23 wounded, six of whom were seriously wounded, including Livingston. Reichel's detachment was a few miles west of Kilali, and was ambushed on the same day. After 20 minutes of fighting, one Marine was wounded. As Reichel made his way into the city, he was attacked again by a force of 400. During this firefight, one Marine was killed and four injured. Reichel was seriously wounded. The two Marine detachments joined up and they built a landing strip to support the evacuation of injured Marines. Knowing the strength of Sandino's army, an additional 100 Marines were sent to help support the other detachments. Over 300 Marines gathered and many others were on their way. On January 14, 1928, the Marines, with assistance from aviation, attacked Sandino's camp on El Chapote and were able to push the rebels back. Several Marine detachments were sent to Sandino's camp, but the Marines found it deserted. When Congress heard the news of Livingston's ambush, plans were made to send the 11th Regiment back to Nicaragua. General Phelan was ordered back to the country, and the Commandant himself, Major General John A. Lejeune, left as well. 300 additional Marines and 100 sailors were sent in as reinforcements. To make the whole situation worse, the Nicaraguan Guards started a mutiny. Marines and some of the Guard Force killed four mutineers, and another Marine detachment was sent to the area and restored order. It was estimated that the bandits' strength was 1,500 men. Their attacks mostly resulted in ambushes with the occasional assault on small towns. 
most of the activity was taking place in northern Nicaragua. Marines were sent to restore order, but due to the terrain and resistance, supplies were non-existent. The Marines improvised by using bull carts and mule pack trains. It took more than a month to get Marines the supplies they needed. Another 750 Marines would join the fight, and Sandino was given one last chance to surrender before the Marines advanced. He didn't accept the United States offer, and the Marines began to head in his direction. In January and February, when they were on their way to Sandino, they would engage with multiple small rebel groups. The casualties for the U.S. were relatively low during these engagements, but the Marines inflicted substantial loss to the rebels. On February 27th, a patrol of 35 Marines ran into 350 rebels. The Marines were surrounded, and they were taken as prisoners. The next day, 100 Marines under Captain McNulty drove the rebels off and rescued the captured Marines. Five Marines were killed and eight were wounded during this engagement. When the supplies finally reached the Marines, they quickly neutralized the bandits. In early April, another seven detachments were sent to destroy supplies for Sandino's army. The Marines still conducted patrols and destroyed any rebel groups, but from March to April, little contact was made. As the rebels headed deeper into the jungles, so did the Marines. Aviation was used to help locate and bombard insurgents hiding in the thick wilderness, and the Marines used rivers and canals to travel deeper into the jungle. By the summer of 1928, more than 1,600 rebels turned themselves in and accepted amnesty. One of the stipulations in the Stimson Agreement stated that the United States would oversee the elections. And in November 1928, 1,500 additional sailors and Marines and a few Army officers were brought in just for that reason. With the help of U.S. forces and the Nicaraguan Guard, the elections were peacefully completed for the first time in the history of the country. The Liberals would win the election and General Moncada was elected as president. The Nicaraguan Guard continued to grow, and by the end of 1928, they had more than 2,000 men. But despite the large force, Marines were still responsible for fighting the bandits. Questions started to come up about the National Guard, and Marines started to ask, when would they start taking over at least some of the responsibility? President Moncada soon announced that he didn't have confidence in the Nicaraguan Guard. He proposed replacing them with a corps of liberal volunteers and sending them to help the Marines. This point is where the situation starts to turn. Neither Feeland nor Sellers thought the Marine Corps should even be involved and the National Guard should be the ones responsible for fighting the rebels. Others disagreed and tensions escalated between U.S. officials on how the Nicaraguan Guard should be used. Beadle would resign from the Jefe director role, and Colonel Douglas McDougall was appointed in his place on March 11, 1929. He didn't waste time making changes, and he immediately made it clear that the Guard's mission was to serve as the country's military force, as well as their police force. He reorganized the Guard into five areas of the country, and by the end of July, they were all over Nicaragua. By the end of 1929, 
it became clear that the Marines would not complete their mission. They were supposed to eradicate the rebels, but they faced significant challenges without having authority over the locals, on whom they primarily relied on for information. The rebels took advantage of this lack of power and threatened the locals if they gave any information to the Marines. Bandits walked around freely, disguised as civilians. But the Nicaraguan Guard did have authority, and when they replaced the Marines, they were able to force the locals to cooperate. In January 1929, President Moncada issued a policy that authorized the Nicaraguan Guards to assume complete duties, which removed the responsibility from the Marines. The U.S. would again withdraw, and around 1,200 Marines were left to protect American and Allied property. The 2nd Brigade would stay the same size until 1931. But the aviation was still very active, and in 1930, they made 5,000 flights, with more than 5,900 flight hours. Throughout 1931, the Nicaraguan Guard continued to fight the bandits with mixed results. During the year, they reported 141 contacts with outlaw groups. The mission of the United States in Nicaragua wasn't accomplished, and President Hoover wanted to put an end to it as soon as possible. The remaining American forces turned over local command to the Nicaraguan officers, and on January 1, 1933, the last American officer left Nicaragua. American naval forces had 32 killed in combat. They also had 15 die of wounds, 24 died of disease, there were 41 accidental deaths, and 24 died of other causes. Marines had around 150 engagements with the bandits. The Nicaraguan Guard had close to 200 killed or wounded, and over 1,000 rebels were killed. The military intervention in Nicaragua was met with a lot of controversy. The United States spent a lot more than what was estimated during this conflict, and there were few benefits. Latin American countries weren't happy with the United States and Nicaragua, and relationships suffered. And although the Marine Corps wasn't successful in its mission, there were many lessons learned during this time. Now continuing our conversation on the Monroe Doctrine, the United States made it clear that they didn't want European nations colonizing or intervening with other countries in the Western Hemisphere. One of the unforeseen consequences of this doctrine was that the United States would have to intervene when a country needed help. The Dominican Republic faced disorders, conflicts, and financial issues since its independence from Spain in 1844. Sixty years later, the Dominican government was essentially bankrupt, and most of whom they owned money to was Europe. Europeans started to get nervous, but President Roosevelt agreed that the United States would help supervise the budget and protect the interests of European creditors. For the first few years, this project went well. But dictators ruled the country, and periodic rebellions would start to pop up and the cost of stopping the insurrections began to cost the United States a lot of money. As a result, the president sent two commissioners to the Dominican Republic. Supporting these two diplomats were 750 Marines, commanded by Colonel Franklin Moses. The Marines sailed on the USS Prairie to Santo Domingo, 
Just for clarification, I use the term sailed loosely. The U.S. Navy transitioned from sails to steamships in the 1890s. The Marines' mission was open to interpretation and left to the two commissioners. Marines were to, quote, cooperate as fully as circumstances render possible in complying with the request and in furthering successful solution of their mission, unquote. Most of the Marines would stay on board the prairie for two months until negotiations were complete. The Marines who did land re-established custom houses lost along the Haitian borders, further deploying an already short-staffed Marine Corps. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to the Dominican Republic. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of the Battle of Midway by Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tolley. The Battle of Midway is one of the most popular battles during World War II and is credited to changing the direction of the war. There are countless books on this battle, but I like Shattered Sword because its primary references are Japanese sources. The research is superb, and it helped me understand the point of view from the Japanese. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. The free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.